Hey there, No Labels, No Limits podcast listeners. I'm excited to share our guest with you today because she's going to speak on a topic that I know something personally about from having been in and out of it a few times. And I'm really interested in learning her take on it. But let me share with you, today's guest is Vicki Oliver. Vicki's an award-winning author, and she's written six books on career development. And her advice has been featured in over 900 media outlets. So that's pretty amazing. And that's included the New York Times, the Wall Street Journals, New York Post, and Esquire. She's a blogger. And some of the folks she blogs for are Thrive Global, Harvard Business Review, Ascend Lifehack, and Kibo Daily. So just know she knows what she's talking about and she's out there sharing it. And her first book, 301 Smart Answers to Tough Interview Questions was a national bestseller, translated four times, and is sold in 12 countries. And she has another book, Power Sales Words, Bad Bosses, Crazy Coworkers, and Other Idiots was another book. So she's a prolific writer, very knowledgeable. And today we're going to focus on burnout. And so, Vicki, let me welcome you to the show and Let's just dive in. How are you today? I'm doing really well. I want to thank you for having me on your show. I live and write in Manhattan, which is a nexus for burnout. And um, it's become a real national problem. So I thought I would write about it and think about it. Well, let's just just get right to the heart of the matter. You know, some of the statistics that you put out there, you state how many people are the percentage that experience burnout. Why don't you share with our audience, I know many of them have been there, and probably many of them are there right now. So can you define burnout and how, how big of an issue it is, but then also how someone might know, are, am I burnout or am I just cranky? Right. So first of all, the World Health Organization says that 28% of workers have experienced burnout. That is really gigantic. It's like one out of three people that you work with, or maybe it's yourself, have the feeling of burnout. So if it's you who experiences it, you know, A, you're not alone. And B, if you're working with people who have it, you're not alone. And I guess for me, what I think is, I think it's as easy to tell whether you're burned out or your boss is. I don't think there's any secret about it. I think a defining aspect is somebody just feels like they have checked out. They have checked out mentally. It's like they're mentally away. They're on vacation, even though they're physically present. That is, to me, what burnout means. It's a clicking off so that, you know, the person's not as vested, really, in what's happening around them and the work output in their environment. They're not, they don't care anymore. Vicki, what are some of the... um physical symptoms someone may feel that goes along with that? Because that's a very, when you describe that, those, how I might recognize it or my boss might recognize it, I get the checkout thing, but are there physical symptoms that someone experiencing burnout may have or express? Yeah, I mean, I think it can be, there's lots of different signs, like some people may experience it by being exhausted. They feel exhausted all the time. Other people may experience it as very high stress. 
So I think that the way it manifests maybe physically can be different from person to person. One person may feel insomnia, you know, another person just can't keep their eyes open. So I think the physical symptoms differ, but what's similar about it is the mentally not being their aspect. What are some of the first steps when I'm, let's just use me as an example so that I can speak first person, but when I'm in burnout or when I have been in burnout in the past, what were some of the first things I could have done to help myself or to change a situation? Right. So I think the first thing is if you can tell that you're feeling burned out, that's really good. It's really good that, you know, it's better to know I'm feeling burned out than to have somebody tell you. Right. You don't want your boss coming in one day and saying, hey, you're really burned out. You know, I'm going to take you off this project. So the first thing is, I would say, like recognition is a good thing. I feel the best sort of quickest way out is to try to actually just take a vacation. And if you can't, for whatever reason, maybe you don't feel like you're able to because you're you know crushed under so much work right now but if you can't actually go on vacation I think second would be try to take a staycation where at least you're at home and not at the office and if you can't arrange that I would say start giving yourself boundaries uh, at least on your cell phone usage and your mobile usage and your computer usage over the weekends. I think one of the contributing factors to burnout, this is my take on it, is that we are all working 24-7 because of the internet. It makes it so easy to communicate with people 24-7. And we are all so quick to do it and to jump that we no longer set the old barriers up that we used to have. So weekends come around, we're still working. Midnight comes around, we're still working. It doesn't matter if we're in physically in the office. We are always in touch. And so I would say the first thing to do is make yourself be out of touch. Force yourself out of touch. So when you do that, what are the ways you can communicate that? Because what, as you were just describing, you said better that you would recognize you're in burnout than say your boss coming and saying, I'm taking you off a project. And because I could imagine that has its own stressor in it, right? If I'm off this project, I'm no longer valuable or visible. There's all these, maybe I'll miss out on the next project. What does that say about me? All those things. So what are the ways that we disconnect or set boundaries without also triggering for folks that worry that they will be excluded potentially or not looked at for the next promotion. I mean, I think there's a lot of behind the scenes worry that happens when people say I'm setting boundaries. I agree. I mean, it's very difficult to do it. Actually, I've covered it a little bit in one of my books where I say, really, it's helpful to set the boundaries when you first arrive at a place. I think part of the issue is that you get there and you're working so hard and then people want more and more of you and you keep giving them more and more and now you have no boundaries at all. But if imagine if you could turn back the clock and you could set the boundaries from when you first walked in. Let's say you have young children and you're working, right? You, it would be normal to not answer every text that you receive over the weekend. You're busy with your family. I'm saying if you set those boundaries when you first arrive at a place, I think it's a mentally healthy thing to do. And I think it's 
actually going to make you less likely to be burned out. But let's assume that that hasn't happened. You're burned out because you've worked so hard. I feel you just have to say, you know, guys, I need, I need a little bit of a rest this weekend and I'm not going to be available this weekend via cell phone. I'm going away with my family. You know, even if you have to make it up a little bit, fib a little, you need that cushion to reset, to recharge. It's so important. I totally agree with you. And I know the reason I asked that question is when I started making those shifts for myself, it was very uncomfortable. And not because I thought I would be passed over or anything, but because I was so used to being available. And like, oh my gosh, I don't want to let people down, this and that. But once I started putting, and I frequently now will just put an autoresponder, I'm either with clients or I'm doing something, but you're not going to hear from me on email or anything else until I'm done because it has that way of making you stressed instead of feeling calm. But yes. it, does, it does take practice setting those boundaries and just living with that temporary discomfort of it because the payoff is so big when you just go, wow, that was such a great day. And I feel, I feel like being around my family or my kids. Right. Now, I mean, I, last year I went on vacation. I was in Los Angeles um, for about 10 days and I decided to do an experiment and I did not open my laptop for 10 days and I'm a professional writer, so for me to skip 10 days like that is really huge. <laughs> and, and it was very uncomfortable because I feel like I'm a workaholic and I'm always working, et cetera, et cetera. But, I mean, the benefits were just so fantastic. And, and I found, personally, that when I got back, I mean, of course, you can't do that, I don't think, if you're working in a company, you know, just flip off for 10 days. But I found that when I got back, I was very motivated to plow through all those emails that had accumulated, you know? I mean, there were hundreds of them, right? So I did them all much faster than I normally do, which I think it had the double benefit of not having them for 10 days and then later plowing through them probably three times as fast as I normally do. That's fantastic. That's great. I'm, I always, I mean, I joke that if I'm somewhere not far, unless I'm in the same town, my laptop's nearby because I'm on it. But I, but I also think one of the benefits of what you just shared is when you ignore your email for 10 days, many of the things someone thought they needed from you in day one to three have been resolved. And you get an email on day eight that says, hey, disregard. Exactly. You know, it's been handled. You're thinking, nice. So I mean, the truth is, you know, none of us are indispensable. And Instead of looking at that, you know, through fearful eyes, like, oh, I'm not indispensable. What if they fire me or whatever at the office? You know, you're not indispensable. There are, there is a team in place. Somebody will have to cover for you. And from a long-term perspective, it's so much more important to take those breaks, take the mental breaks you need so you can stay in for the long term. I totally agree. So in the title of your book, Bad Bosses, Crazy Workers, and Other Office Idiots, which does deal with burnout, we've kind of talked about from the personal side of what do I do when I feel burnout, but what if it's my boss that's burnout or I have crazy coworkers? What do I do? What's my interaction with them? How do I in a, you know, kind of deal with those situations? Exactly. So first of all, I think the good news is that if your boss is the one who is burned out, 
this is an opportunity for you. This is this is the time when you say to yourself, this person is creating a vacuum and I can fill it. I can help bridge the gap because my boss is mentally checked out and there's work to be done and I am going to help do it. Now, the only trouble with that is that you don't want to do so much of it that you yourself burn out. So I would say don't take on 100%. Take on 10% and see if it agrees with you and then try to grow into it. Chances are it's a good opportunity because first of all, if you do it correctly, you're making your boss look good because you're filling in the gap and you're helping your boss. You're helping the person and you're making him or her look good. So eventually if you do it right and you're not snarky about it or mean-spirited about it, I feel it can lead to a promotion down the line. So it's a great opportunity. So Vicki, let's just play that out a little. If I'm noticing my boss and I'm either I know for a fact they're burnout because I, it's clear or I'm getting a sense they are, do I just go and say, hey, Frank, it seems like you've got a lot on your plate right now and I think I could help in this area. So I will come with a plan in mind and present that or do I just start doing it? What is the best way or is there a best way to interact on that without overstepping? Yeah, I think that's a great question. I mean, my tendency would be to just do it, like just start doing it because there's a need and you're filling it. And, and really at the heart of it, when you're working for somebody, you're there to solve problems. And the burnout, if you can sort of diagnose that your boss is you know, feeling burnt out, you're diagnosing a problem and you're helping to fill it and you don't have to draw attention to it necessarily. Now, if you're working for a complete control freak, see my book, please. If you're working for a complete control freak, depends on the personality of the person above you. But in general, I would say, just start taking it on. Just do a little bit at a time. See if it works. Then if it does, take on a little bit more. I don't think you should bring it to anyone else's attention at first. I don't think you should ever tell anybody, oh, my boss is burned out. Great. So it's really just do what needs to be done or from a different way of saying it's take ownership of the situation. Take ownership and just try to realize that eventually it's going to be like you have taken on more responsibility and you will not be alone in noting that. Like in the beginning, it might feel like, oh, I'm doing all this extra work and nobody's noticing. And don't feel that way because eventually people will notice. And if you had the good manners not to discuss it, it's even better. They're like, oh my God, she's doing so much, you know? And I think it can only make you look good. Well, and like you said earlier, it's kind of a nice way to be able to try on some new hats to make sure you're, often you'll hear, well, I could do that person's job better. And you don't necessarily know all the facets of the job, but if you're in a position to do some of it to see, do I even want to do that job or do I actually have what it takes to contribute in a different way? It could be a great way to step in and um, figure some of that out without having to go all in on something you may or may not ultimately want. Exactly. I mean, that's really true. You know, pick the parts of your boss's job that you like, that you want to do, you know? Don't take on the accounting function if you don't know how to do it. You know what I mean? Take on the stuff that you know how to do and that you want to, that you want to learn. 
a great opportunity for you. So what prompted you to write this book? Well, so my first book was 301 Smart Answers to Accept Interview Questions. Um, I, I was in the advertising business, and I was always myself looking for a job. And then I was also later hiring people who would sort of tumble in and not know my name or our clients or anything. And I just, I mean, 150 times I said, you know, I should write about job hunting. I really should write about job hunting. <laughs> and, and so one day, you know, I wrote about job hunting. And um, in that book, I said, hey, I want to hear from my readers. And I gave people my email, my direct email to me. And I said, you know, I've given 301 answers, but if you have a question that I didn't answer, I will give you a free question. And so I opened myself up to that, and it led to the research for bad bosses, crazy coworkers, and other office idiots, because people really shared their stories with me. I was very lucky. So what is a bad boss? <laughs> so the theory of my book is that a bad boss, it depends on you, what you consider to be a bad boss. Like, for example, I have, I love you, mom, but I have a very, very controlling mom. And so for me, I didn't want to work for somebody who was terribly controlling. So that personality type is the type that drives me crazy, right? But somebody else, you know, maybe they grew up and their parents were very flexible, and that they don't mind having, you know, a disciplinarian boss because they need a little discipline. So it really depends on your own hot buttons and what you perceive. And, and the way I organized the book was by personality type. And the idea was it was a thesaurus of all the people who could drive you crazy. And you would look up that type, see what to do about them, and then put the book away for another day until somebody else drove you crazy. Oh, that's hilarious. That's great. No. <laughs> because that's where oftentimes people come from. Like, so-and-so just did this. They're so annoying because of X. So right. you would actually have a tool to go and look and say, okay, now what? Right. Now what do I do? Like, this person is always looking over my shoulder. It's driving me crazy. What do I do? And then, but there are people, I mean, I worked at one time for a, a man in advertising who was never there. The boss was, like, never around, Right. So I love that situation because I don't like all the authority, you know, and I love the situation. But like other people were like, he's never around. He's never around. We need him, you know. It depends on what drives you crazy. Um, for me, like that Wizard of Oz boss is what I call him in my book. That was great. But for somebody else, they felt like they had no guidance. So it just depends on what drives you crazy. And, you know, the flip side, the other part of my theory with the book is that it's very important to figure this out because let's say you do work for somebody that's very controlling and that person drives you crazy and, and then you don't like her and so you leave. Well, the next place you work, you're going to run into the same personality type, you know, not the same person but the same personality type. So it's helpful to just, the grass is not greener at another company. They're the same types of people at all places. So it's better to learn how to deal with them. That's so true. Because people really are the ingredient to everything. You know, people, I just want the right formula. I want the right tool. And I'm thinking, doesn't matter what tool or formula I have. If it involves people, you've got to understand people. 
and yourself. So, but what if I'm the boss? Will your book help me if I think I've got crazy subordinates and coworkers? Yes, because, well, the last third of the book asks bosses, well, asks people really to look in the mirror and see if they are the problem, right? Because if, let's say, you keep going from place to place to place and you're always running into problems, chances are you are the problem. So, you know, I'm a big believer in that it's very difficult to change unless you want to change. If you want to change, you can change. It's sort of looking at your yourself and your history and your foibles and trying to overcome them. So besides your book, which it sounds like it's very practical and useful, and probably if it's anything like you, has a little humor tinged in it, do people, are people generally able to make those shifts independently, Vicki, or do they need to get like a mentor at work or someone outside to help them kind of figure out what's going on and then adapt or change, you know, in the ways they need to? So, I mean... You know, I'm a huge believer in trying to find a mentor. Um, Sometimes it's hard because a lot of the mentoring programs that used to exist at corporations have disappeared. So usually if you go into a company, you're not going to be aided in finding a mentor. Nobody's going to say, this is your mentor. And of course, let's say your boss is burned out. Well, that does not make a good mentor either, right? You're going to have to find yourself a mentor. But I think it's helpful because at The heart of it, like what is a mentor? I would say a mentor is somebody who cares about you, who cares about your development. And because he or she cares about you and they want to see you succeed and they're not competing with you, they just want to see you succeed, their advice is going to be very good. I mean, the best mentor you could possibly have, in my opinion, is a boss who's not burned out who cares about championing you. That's the best kind. But it's very difficult to find that person. And if you can't find that person, don't despair. Maybe you can find a mentor in a different department who still works at your company who can give you good advice. And if you can't find that person, maybe you can do what I do, which is sort of collect a bunch of people around me who I consider to be giving me great advice all the time. I don't think it's essential that a mentor has to work at your company. I just think that what's important is that the mentor cares about you and will give you brilliant advice. I think I love the way that you collect people around you, partially because it just, that's kind of my style. It's like there's certain people you think, ah, they're a go-to for me because they're brave enough to be honest and they don't have a stake in what I do. They're not going to benefit or have anything go wrong in their lives, excuse me, because of what I do. So yeah, I think that's powerful. And it also, I think when you ask for help from a mentor or they see that you need it and they kind of help you recognize it, it's a very freeing thing to say, I'm stuck here. You know, I'm not sure what to do. And then it starts to make it easier to ask for help when you're in those situations. Right. I mean, if you if you can't find one, you know, anywhere, no matter what you do, I would say, like, go go try to find a career coach for a couple of months. You know, sometimes, you know, your career might feel like you're in a rut or you're stuck. A lot of times a mentor can sort of unstick you by suggesting things. Oh, did you look at this job that's open in this department? 
did you go talk to so-and-so on staff, you know, about how they rose? I mean, they, mentors have brilliant ideas and that's really that's what we need. Yeah, and sometimes it's like you just did there. They ask the right question of you so that then you're, if something clicks for you and you're thinking, I never occurred, that never occurred to me, you right. know, and so it really does help unlock you. Right. So can I ask you to talk a little bit about your other books? Oh, sure. Thank you. Right. So the first book was 300 West Smart Answers to Tough Interview Questions. And that is like a primer on all the types of questions you can just get on an interview. It's a general primer. Um, it's, you know, not technical information. And uh, there I believe that interviews are one of those situations where you only want to have one. You want to have one interview and then get the job, right? It's unfortunately a situation where you improve the more you interview, the better you get. So sometimes, if, let's say if you're out, of, like let's say you're working for someplace for five years and then you find yourself looking for a job, you may not be up to speed on the way you need to be answering questions about yourself. So this is sort of like you go, you practice, maybe you grab a friend and, you know, it helps you formulate questions and answers in the interview process. Bad Bosses, Crazy Coworkers, and Other Office Idiots we've talked about. It's about office politics and the personalities that can drive you nuts. I have also written a book called Power Sales Words, which is more like a thesaurus of expressions and words. It's like how to help somebody write a business communication if they just don't feel like they themselves are a writer. It's easy. It's quick. It's, you know, all my books, I hope, are fun. Another book I wrote is called 301 Smart Answers to Tough Business Etiquette Questions, Etiquette is such a disappearing art, and nobody knows how to, what we're doing. You know, we don't know how to eat spaghetti, right? We don't know how to get into an elevator and answer a question from our boss. Should you? Shouldn't you? So that is just a really fun book about teaching people, like, the lost art of etiquette, which I think can help in business situations get you ahead. If, they, if people who, who you report to feel like you are an ambassador for the company, it will only help you. Let me ask you something about etiquette more specifically, because I've been noticing a trend. And so from your perspective in research and writing, if, if it's something you're seeing or, and what you recommend, but because there's more and more online presence for employees, either through their business channels or externally and then connected or related to them, what etiquette are you seeing either being ignored or that needs to be applied in those ways that people may be lax about or not thinking about when they're communicating in that way? And how does it impact them at work? So there's like a third of that book is devoted to what I call online etiquette, like online, what people are doing right or wrong. I feel one tricky thing with online etiquette is that tone is the first thing to go. If you write something to somebody and you think it's funny, they may not think it's funny. Like the tone is quite tricky online with what you write. And you have to be careful that the tone of cordiality does not erode. And so often, I mean, how many times do we do this? I know I do it, you know, a hundred times a day, probably. Let's say you're in an online discussion with somebody 
and you're typing back and forth, right? You're just like email, 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 email. You know, you don't change the subject line, right? On each of the emails. It just, it's just a stream on, you know, whatever subject line it used to be, right? And you're still on that stream. Then that's the first thing that goes. There's no new subject line. Then the second thing that goes is like a lot of times we don't say things like best at the end of the email. We don't say best. We don't sign off on our emails. And then maybe that's the second thing to go. The third thing to go is maybe now we're in a stream. We don't say hi. We don't say hi, Claire. How are you? We're just in the conversation. And slowly, all those little cordial politenesses fade. It's very, very easy to get very ticked off in email. And a lot of times, this is so easy to avoid, but a lot of times it's in the speed of the moment, we don't think to be polite. You know, we don't say please and thank you and cordially, get cordially, right? We never say best. And so that's the trick with it. Don't get into flame emails. I love all of those things because those are things that I do. I look I on, like you, email all the time, all day, right? Coming in, going out. But the not changing the subject lines is one of the toughest because important communication gets buried in something it's unrelated to. And you're just thinking, I don't know, I never got that email because all I saw was the conversation going on on something else and you've changed topics. Yes. So, um, so that's the issue. But the other thing is like just giving information and no closure. Also, you know, so often emails are group things, right? Uh, and when I write a group email to people, I some some of the people have to be copied and some of the people the email is for, right? I try to say like hi Amy, you know, I try to flag the person I'm talking to so that the other people maybe don't have to read it so carefully, but the person I'm talking to, I want them to read it very carefully. I love those tips. I do. Because I think it helps everybody. And it, to me, it's it goes to your etiquette thing, but it also shows respect for the person whose time you're taking by sending them an email in the first place. Right. And you know, the book also, well, a part of the book is devoted to eating at restaurants and the reason that this matters is if you are courting clients a lot of times you have to take them to a restaurant and it takes you through some things you would be so surprised how few people know how to use a fork and knife and spoon (laughs) it's very very tricky those utensils and it talks about you know the etiquette also of conversation in a business situation if you are taking a client to lunch Maybe there are two of them, and how you split your time between the people, how much time you devote to the important person, you know, versus the less important person. All those issues that nobody teaches us anything about, it kind of goes into them. And I believe people will do better at the office if people enjoy working with them. And I think that the crux is what you just hit on, which is the word respect. A lot of this really boils down to respect, you know, how much you respect a person, respect opposing viewpoints, how much you, you give, you have to, how much you listen when you don't like what somebody's telling you, you know, these types of things. I read something you wrote that was along those lines and about civility. So I just think you have so much of importance to say. And and especially for me, I think what draws me to the etiquette piece 
is because our relationships and our civility to me feels very personal in us maintaining like a community, a city, a state, whatever, where we live that we feel a part of instead of, you know, like being rude to everybody. And I I remember being in school and having etiquette lessons and thinking these are lame and then being older and going, I'm so glad I know what to do with extra utensils. Yeah, Um, it's funny you say that because one of my high schools here in New York was like an all-girls school and it almost felt like antiquated and almost like a charm school kind of a thing. And I, I, de- I definitely felt that way too. And here I am now writing about etiquette, you know? So I'm glad I had the background in it. But I also want to say that, you know, without getting into anything political, today, today, etiquette is really on the decline. And I think you can see that very clearly in social media. I have friends, you know, who are both ardent uh, Democrats, and I have friends who are ardent Republicans, you know, and it's like they can't talk to each other online at all. I've had people that I know very well say, oh, you know, I don't like her anymore because I don't like her posts. And the tone of our posts has become so vitriolic and toxic. And we have to be very careful with that, you know, I, especially if you're in a field where your reputation matters. And I believe that's every field, but especially in certain fields, I would say try to cool it on, on the toxicity in the posts, because no matter what side you're on, you're not going to change anybody's mind. You're never going to change somebody's mind. So you may as well be polite and civil. I couldn't agree with you more. And it doesn't, people's minds change, but they don't change because someone's yelled at them in that way. Right. It just, it further entrenches people. And I think um, I always listen for when someone's going, and the key word for me is they'll go, they'll say, well, I read this thing and those people, and I just go on, what people? Those are my friends you're talking about. Well, but I like you. And I says, yeah, but they can have different opinions than you. So, I mean, it's just so interesting, the little words that clue you in that there's judgments being made that separate us rather than curiosity to say, I wonder what really makes them feel that way to be so passionate about something. So I just want to let you know, I'm, I'm so happy to know that you're out there pushing that civility and etiquette and all of the work that you're doing. So are you gonna say, I mean, in a, in a bar, like when you are at a table with a boss and clients I really think it's best if you can honestly try to avoid getting into political discussions because everything is so divided now that you have you could inadvertently insult somebody and it's very difficult to take that back especially if the person is a client you know you don't want to insult your clients so in that book I have lists of conversational topics that you can talk about <laughs> Uh, so that you can uh, you can carry on civilly. I think that's great. And always when someone brings up something, if you can't shift it, I just always think, well, that's interesting. What do you think about that? And offer no opinion. Because especially if they're clients, I'm not there. I'm there to give them a service, not to be their best friend. Exactly. So, Vicki, as we're um, wrapping up the interview today, is there something, piece of advice you want to listen to 
to leave with our listeners who may be um, finding themselves either in a situation that feels untenable or confused? I actually think your books are a good first step. But in terms of what would you recommend if someone's feeling burnout and wanting to make a change, is there a single first or second step that you'd say, hey, do this? And then I would actually recommend they connect with you online. But Yeah, I mean, first of all, if anyone wants to connect with me online, that's great. I mean, the simplest thing to do is to remove yourself from the situation. Just get out. It's Friday. Leave early. Go to a spa. Relax. Like, just get yourself out of the situation. Unplug. Unplug. For the weekend. At the very, very least. I think... The more you realize that you're burned out, that's a good thing to know about yourself and to know that you just need to probably recharge and just plot it out. When are you going to take a vacation? Stop working till 8 o'clock at night. You know, leave at 5 for the next week. Just make yourself, force yourself to have more fun. You know, get to the gym, things like that, do yoga. So those are the easy things I would say. Again. If your boss is burned out, it's a great opportunity for you. So don't be shy about shouldering more responsibility. That's great. Well, thanks, Vicki. And I'm looking forward to actually grabbing your etiquette book so that I can learn more about some of your tips there because I know they'll come in handy. Thank you very much for having me. I really appreciate it. And um, enjoy the weekend. Thank you. You too. Well, that's it for this week's edition of the No Labels no limits podcast we hope you like what you heard and if you did we ask that you go over to itunes stitcher spotify or wherever else you listen to the podcast and leave us a rating and review if you know someone who would enjoy this podcast please be sure to share and until next time have a great week living a no labels no limits and no excuses life 